Good morning, everyone. This one here, we did it. Somebody was saying last week that the greatest power in the church is the person who runs the sound. So they can mute whatever is happening. It was in 1530 that a guy named Deridus Erasmus published a work that quickly became one of Europe's bestsellers. In fact, for 200 years, it remained one of Europe's bestsellers. For a point of reference, Harry Potter in the modern world is the longest book that's been on the bestseller, and it was for nearly seven years. 200 years, and you wonder, what was this book about, and what was this book? The book was called On Civility in Boys, and it was a book on public etiquette full of maxims and short statements about how to and how not to behave in all sorts of settings. So I just picked a few of the things that Erasmus shares in this book on civility in boys. Don't blow your nose onto the tablecloth or into your fingers, sleeve, or hat. Don't carry your handkerchief in your mouth. Turn away when spitting, lest your saliva fall on someone. Do not gnaw on a bone and put it back in the serving dish. And before I read this last one, people would stay in inns. And so it's like a hotel, but you often would share a bed with a stranger. And so he says, if you come across something disgusting in the sheets, don't turn to your companion and point it out to him or hold up the stinking thing for others to smell and say, I should like to know how much that stinks. Now, I'm guessing after those few samples, you're wondering why in the world would that have been a bestseller for 200 years? Well, maybe one thing you learn is how disgusting men can be, ultimately. But the other thing I think that we come to find is that we like to know how we're supposed to behave when we're in a group of people. It's good to know what is expected of us, and many people, when they know what's expected, they would behave in an appropriate way. The other thing I, reason I think the book is so popular is because it's style and structure. It was really easy to get through. It was really easy to digest with these short, quick, easy, clear statements. What I find most interesting is that Erasmus wasn't the first to do this. Paul finishes his letter to the Thessalonians by giving his own list of clear and short statements about what is expected of the people who are part of the community of God. In these final verses, there's no long-winded theological arguments. There's no, no deep stories. There's no extensive conversations. There's just these short, almost like he puts them in a rifle, just fire after fire after fire of these instructions about how they are to live in the context of a Christian community. And so if we want to get a sense of what it looks like for us to live in the context of community, I think we'll find these verses helpful to us as well. And really, there's four completely unrelated topics that Paul addresses. So we're going to look at each of these topics one by one. The first is relationship with leaders. But we appeal to you, brothers and sisters, to respect those who labor among you and have charge of you in the Lord and admonish you. Esteem them very highly in love because of their work. So Paul begins by teaching the church how she should respond, the kind of relationship that there should be between leadership. And I think the first thing that I want to be sure that we recognize is that even though Paul believes in and teaches the priesthood of all believers, he recognizes there's a difference between what we would call church members and church leaders. 
that the respect and the esteem is something that he believes is for those who are playing a different role in the church. But notice also that Paul makes his case based on an appeal. Paul could have commanded them. Paul could have said, you must esteem and you must respect these individuals. But instead, he appeals to them. The purpose and the function of appeal is to avoid an external obligation. Have you ever done something just because someone made me do it? Well, Paul is saying that the worst possible thing you could do in a relationship with a leader is because somebody forced you into it, you're doing it. So instead of an external obligation, Paul is trying to create an internal recognition that there are individuals in our midst who are worthy of esteem, who are worthy of respect. But the other thing that we notice here is that when Paul appeals to the church to respond to esteem and respect these leaders, he does not do it because of a leader's position, but he does it because of the leader's conduct. I don't know if you notice it, but there's something that's missing in this text that would have made our job as interpreters an awful lot easier. Paul completely leaves out the appropriate and specific nouns that would have been so helpful to us. Paul could have made our job much easier if he just said who exactly it is that we're supposed to respect and esteem. Paul doesn't say respect or esteem elders or preachers or deacons or song leaders or Bible class teachers. He does not say exactly who he's referring to because he's describing them not on the basis of who they are by position, but on what they do in terms of their function. And specifically, he highlights twice the kind of work, their labor, and the work that they are doing. I think what Paul is trying to do is he's trying to find a middle pathway between two dangerous, two dangerous relationships you can find between church members and church leaders. The first dangerous relationship is leaders who are authoritarian and overbearing. And that's why Paul won't say, I command you to respect and esteem these people because he doesn't want us to find a position where we're doing something simply because we've been commanded because if a person is authoritarian or if they are overbearing, Paul finds that there is a different expectation or a call from them. And so on the one hand, Paul's trying to safeguard against authoritarian leaders. But on the other hand, Paul wants us to avoid the danger of an anarchist church member, people who believe that nobody can tell me what I have to do. And Paul realizes that there are people who we are to esteem and to respect because of the work that they are doing in the midst of the church. Paul is letting us know that if you are a church member, you are not a free agent who gets to do whatever you want, however you want, whenever you want, that there is an obligation and a responsibility between members and their leaders. And I think today that we have to avoid both these dangers. Everett Hufford, who was one of my teachers at Harding, uh, travels around the world and he teaches about healthy congregations. And he says a healthy congregation needs good leaders and good followers. And he says when he goes to non-Western countries, he often finds he spends most of his time saying, I've got to talk to you about how to be good leaders because in non-Western countries, they're great followers, but very few people want to lead. But if you had to guess what the problem with Western world is, do you think it's an issue with leaders or an issue with followers? We are not, as a culture, as a whole, very good followers, are we? You can't tell me what to do. You ever heard anybody say Something like that. And so Paul is giving us a pathway as people, and we are all followers in different ways, in different aspects within the congregation. The homework is this. If you are leading in any capacity, are you laboring at it? 
Are you working at it in such a way that you are worthy of respect and esteem? And if you are, as we all are in different capacities, if you are a follower, are you giving respect and esteem to, the, to those who are working hard in our midst? So Paul's first group of instruction is to respect and esteem the leaders who are working hard among us. Paul then goes on to talk about relationships in the church community. Peace, be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, beloved, to admonish the idlers, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with all of them. See that none of you repays evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to all. First, Paul talks about the relationship between church members and church leaders. And then he wants to make something very clear. All of us as church members have a pastoral responsibility to one another. Paul is not saying these are the things that, that the leaders are going to do. He is now instructing the congregation to say, this is a responsibility that all of us carry and that all of us bear. And he said earlier, he talked about admonishing. He said, that's one of the works of the leaders. And now he says, for everyone, they have the work of admonishing those who need to be admonished. Paul calls all of us to be involved in a work of pastoral ministry. And so what are we to do as we're caring for and interacting with one another? Paul says that we are to be at peace among ourselves. That peace in our midst is a sign that the Spirit of God is at work in the midst of this body of believers. Paul will tell, will say in Ephesians 4, 3, that we are to make every effort to maintain the bond of peace. But if you've been in a church for very long, or maybe if you were to look to your left or your right, you might notice that there's an empty seat that was previously occupied by someone who's no longer here. It's really hard for us, maybe because we're not good followers, maybe because we want to do our own thing, but it is very hard for us to learn to be at peace among ourselves. I think any of us could look in the rearview mirror and see broken relationships. Maybe you've been at the heart of some of those people who got their feelings hurt because of something you said or something that you did. And yet we are called to be a people of peace. How do we do this? I think we have open, difficult, and honest conversations. I think if the church were a kind of a glue, I think we've created the church like the command strips so that you can stick it on, take it off, stick it on, take it off, and there's no implications at all. I think Paul wants the church to be more like duct tape where if you take it off, it's going to hurt. And it's going to be painful. What kind of a glue do we have in our midst? Over and over, I find that we often pack our bags before we've even begun to address the situation. We need to be a people who learn to have difficult conversations, doing the difficult thing, so that we can have peace amongst ourselves. Paul will later write to the church in Rome, and I find this a very helpful guide as you're starting to say, man, how do we do this? And so in Romans, Paul will write, if it is possible... So far as it depends on you, live at peace with all. Have we done all that we can to ensure that we live in peaceable relationships? And then verse 14, as we again are talking about our pastoral responsibility to want, towards one another, Paul says there are three things that we need to be doing. We need to be admonishing, we need to be encouraging, and we need to be helping. But each of these things have a corresponding type of a person that we need to treat in each of these ways. We admonish the idlers, we encourage the faint-hearted, and we help those who are weak. And it seems to me we're going to need some spirit-infused wisdom to figure out which of these actions is appropriate in which a different kind of a context. 
See, as I was thinking about this, I was thinking about a personality test called the Big Five uh, Traits. And, and so everyone is, is rated on this spectrum of openness and conscientiousness and extroversion and agreeableness and neuroticism. So I want to look for just a little bit, I mean, neuroticism, we know we're all going to be like way over here, I know for sure. But I want to look at agreeableness for a minute here. Agreeableness is, is the extent to which you will go to make sure that, that, that you're considering others, that you're working with others, that you're cooperative. And so highly agreeable people are going to go way out of their way to make sure everybody's getting along. And people who are very low on the agreeable scale would say, I don't really care what you think. This is what I'm going to do anyways. And you'll find that people are across the spectrum on the agreeable scale. And what our culture says is you allow your personality to take the lead. So if you are a highly agreeable person, maybe you, you're involved in helping people and you're involved in encouraging people, but I'm not going to admonish anyone because that's not something that a high agreeable person would do. Or vice versa. But like, I can do the admonishing thing, just don't ever ask me to encourage and don't ever ask me to help. But Paul is calling for all of us to be involved in these different aspects of ministry. In fact, I think Paul inverts the process. The very first question you ask is what kind of a person am I dealing with? Am I dealing with somebody who is idle? Am I dealing with somebody who is faint-hearted? Am I dealing with somebody who is weak? Because who they are through that other-focused attention is going to determine what the appropriate action is going to be. Maybe one of the ways that we could say this is that in the Christian community, we build relationships for the sake of the kingdom so that we can risk relationships for the sake of the kingdom. I've noticed that some people, usually very agreeable people, are great at building relationships. They're the people that are going to come in and they're going to greet you and they're going to give you warm hugs and they're going to say, if you need anything, I'll do anything. But if you start to veer off your Christian walk, they're going to find it really hard to admonish you. They're going to find it really hard to challenge you because they're afraid for their own sake that you then might not like them anymore. That, that you might think that they're, they're hard or, or they're mean or they're confronting you. And so some people say, hey, look, I've built this relationship, but I'm going to hold on to the relationship so tightly that I'm not going to admonish you. And so we build relationships, but we also need to be willing to do what with those relationships? If necessary, to risk them by admonishing those who need to be admonished. But then there are some people who skip the whole building relationship thing and say, I'm going straight to admonishment. Somebody walks in the church, you've never met them before, and you go up to them and you say, excuse me, but I think what you're wearing is a highly inappropriate thing to wear to church. What did they risk? They risked nothing because they had no relationship. The relationship always precedes the admonishing. And so Paul calls us into a kind of a relationship that we see there's something valuable and significant, that we will build relationships. But if necessary, we'll be willing to risk those relationships in order to keep people on the path that God has in store for them. And then Paul tells us that we are to be patient with all of them. And it seems to me that there will be times that we will get it wrong. That there will be times when what somebody really needs is some encouragement and we admonish them. Paul says, in a case like that, be patient with people. There are going to be people who they need encouragement and we're going to give them help. And we should have just encouraged them during that time. How do we function in a community with broken people and fallen people who will get this wrong? We're going to do it by being patient with all of them. And if we are patient, then we will act in this way where Paul says, see to it that none of you repay evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to all. I mean, you need some patience not to do evil to those who do evil to you. 
to think about what is the right response, what is an appropriate response. And this way of acting is not just for one another in the body of Christ, but to all means to all people. We seek to do good to all people, both Christian and non-Christian. That brings us now to Paul's third topic, our relationship with God. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Over the last couple of decades, people have been obsessing about the will of God. I, mean, the, the, I just got to know if I'm, am I doing God's will? And, 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 and they're, they're so overwhelmed and almost oppressed by this. How do I know if I'm doing God's will? Paul gives a very simple solution. Paul gives a very easy uh, answer to that. He says, are you rejoicing always? Are you praying without ceasing? Are you giving thanks in all circumstances? And if you're doing these things, you know you are doing what? The will of God. There are very clear things that God reveals to us that are his will. And these are three of those things. And these are things that we are to be practicing on an ongoing, perpetual, increasing way. That they're a part of our daily life on a regular basis. Are we rejoicing? Are we praying? Are we giving thanks to God for his generosity? See, since God is God, we can rejoice always. Knowing that his will is being done here on earth, just as it is in heaven. Because God is a gracious God who hears us, we will pray in all circumstances, in everything, because we know that God is a God who hears us. And we don't give thanks for all circumstances, but we give thanks in all circumstances, because we know that we have a God who oversees all things. And all these are directed to God. He is our source of joy. He is the one who listens to our prayers. And he is the giver of all good things. And then Paul's fourth topic now, he deals with prophecy. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise the words of the prophets, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. So there's an issue with prophecy in the church in Thessalonica, and I can imagine the conversation happening like this, where one of the guys gets up on a Sunday morning and he says, you know what? Last week, Tom stood behind this pulpit and he gave us a word of prophecy as we've now looked at the teachings of the apostles, we have found out that that prophecy was not an accurate word to speak. Therefore, I adjourn that we no longer allow anyone to offer words of prophecy in this church. And then a few people in the back go, Amen. And now we're going to not allow any prophecy to happen here. And what Paul says in response to that is essentially, don't throw out the baby with the bathwater. He gives two instructions to those who think that we should just stop allowing prophecy. He says, don't quench the spirit. Do not despise the words of the prophets. Don't tell people just flat out we're not going to allow prophecy because what that's trying to do is it's trying to take the Holy Spirit, put him in a box and say, he's only allowed to do this. And we have decided as a church that the Holy Spirit is given this much space, but he's not given anything else that he can do in our midst. And then you say, well, if we're not going to outright ban prophecy, then what are we going to do? Because some people will bring false prophecy. Paul will say, what do you do in circumstances like that? You test everything. When we are in church, we are thinking people. We are testing people. Because we want to ensure that what we are doing and what is being said is the will of God. So Paul will later in other passages, he will lay out how one tests, but he does not do that here. And then he says, once you've done the testing, then you have two options. You hold fast to what is good, or you abstain from every form of evil. When I was reading about Paul's instructions to the church, I've thought about the number of times that I've thought, you know, a simplest thing here is if we just like ban all of whatever this type of thing is, because it's so much easier 
But what we realize is anytime you misplace the balance between risk and reward, if you lop off something on risk, you also simultaneously lop off something in reward. If you're afraid of what the Holy Spirit might do that might cost us something, that the only way to do that is by also cutting off something that the Holy Spirit might do and bringing a blessing and a benefit to people. So I wondered, we don't often have this issue with prophecy today, but I, uh, one of the things that I know that I've thought about is, is this discussion about testimony. And this is not about whether we should or should not have testimony here, but I think testimony is a good example. of One of the things I always get concerned about is when you put somebody behind the mic and you don't know what they're going to say, that's a scary time. Because you have no idea what's going to come out of their mouth. So my personal preference is to say, let's just make a rule and say, nobody who we've not previously said should be behind the mic should ever get behind the microphone. Have you ever thought that? Because they might say something dumb or bad or insensitive. And I'm like the people in Thessalonica who just say, you know what, we're going to just, let's just blank, cut this whole thing out. And maybe Paul says, what if we could teach people to test, to know, to decide, to weigh what is good? What is healthy? What is right? We need to learn what people have learned to do with fish. I'm sure you've heard it, right? You eat the meat, throw out the bones. That's what Paul says we need to be able to do in the church. We need to know what we should eat and consume. We also need to know what is not healthy for us to consume. Paul will conclude then by saying, May the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely. And may your spirit and soul and body be kept sound and blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful, and he will do this. And for me, as I read this, it's kind of a big sigh of relief because I started getting a little overwhelmed by all of these things that Paul's saying, do this, do this, do this. And I'm saying, I don't do that great. I don't do that well. I can think of times where, where I failed in doing that. And Paul brings us back to an awareness of how is it that we're going to do this. And Paul does not simply put the responsibility on our shoulders in terms of holiness or in terms of sanctification. Paul is reminding them that God is at work in this process of helping them become who they need to be. See, what Paul is praying is that God will be the active force that empowers them in the process of being made holy or in the process of being sanctified. And Paul doesn't say, make sure you keep your body and your soul and your spirit, that you keep it. He says, it is being kept, which means God is the one who is keeping our body, our soul, our spirit. See, Paul's message is not ultimately to the church in Thessalonica. Just try harder. Paul's message is the more and more you give yourself over to the God of peace, the more and more you will find these things flowing out of your lifestyle and out of your behavior. If the God of peace is at work within us, Paul says, he will bring to completion that which he has begun. So we have these clear, short statements that Paul teaches so that we know what to expect in the community of God. But what differentiates Paul's letter from that which Erasmus wrote on incivility in boys is ultimately one is simply your responsibility, and the other is the work of God in your life. And so maybe we could summarize Paul's statements in this way. God is teaching us to respect and esteem those who work among us. God is teaching us how to minister to all, how to be at peace with all, how to admonish and encourage and to help each other, depending on whichever is appropriate. 
Paul, God is teaching us what it means to rejoice always, to pray without ceasing, and to give thanks in all circumstances. And God is teaching us to test everything so that we might hold to what is good and avoid that which is evil. And we do all of these things knowing that the one who called us is faithful, and he will do this. We're going to sing a song in just a moment, and if you want to respond in any way, I will be in the back. Some of our elders will be in the back. But if this has challenged you or convicted you in any way, I want to encourage you to continue the conversation. But before we sing that song, I do want to offer a word of blessing. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn towards you and give you peace. And we remember as we go out into a world that sometimes is hostile to us as Christians, we go with the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, with the love of God, and with the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. Let's go and stand together and sing. And if you need anything, come to the back.